This episode is brought to you by Crimes to Remember, a podcast hosted by comedian Sherry Franklin. Coming at you every Thursday evening at 8 p.m., this podcast is informative, entertaining, super well-produced from an audio and visual standpoint, as well as a breath of fresh air in the true crime genre. This is a different approach that I find refreshing. The chemistry that the host has with the guests is brilliant, and the show has this conversational quality to the cases, but don't let that word throw you. This show knows its stuff and does its homework. You owe it to yourself, if you're a fan of all things true crime, to check out this show. Crimes to Remember really comes out of the gate swinging, and it shows. A link to the show will be in this episode's notes, so join me in subscribing. another episode of strange places before we get into it i'm sorry to go all bob ross on you this episode if you hear my voice very soft and sultry i uh (laughs) in my day job as well as what is slowly becoming my day job i use my voice literally full bore 24 hours a day between two podcasts a couple of youtube channels my day job which requires my voice so (laughs) I, um, my voice gets fatigued very easily. My, I have a tendency to have my voice go dry on me. And, uh, I just, that's why I love strange places because I can be soft spoken and I kind of think it makes the episodes a little bit, you know, spookier. So (laughs) if you're wondering why I'm a little bit whispery today, just kind of trying to, you know, preserve it a little bit today. It's a not, not feeling the best, but the show must go on. Right. And again, uh, before we get into it, I did a bonus episode, and it's called In the News, a little segment that I'm trying. Let me know what you think of it. I would really like to do just kind of one-shot, you know, just reading articles that come out about paranormal stuff going on. Um, This one was about these fast radio bursts that keep coming from interstellar space, really creepy stuff. And if you like that kind of segment, it's not going to be every week. It'll be every once in a while. If you... uh, react positively to it, or even negatively, let me know. Because, uh, yeah, I I, I think it's kind of cool. There's little bonus episodes every once in a while. So for this one, got a bit of a story to tell you. Today we're traveling to Manchester, Connecticut. Michael Jones. He was a five-year-old when he first started seeing deceased people. I'll just say it like it is. It happened one evening in 1993 while his mom, Denise, was preparing dinner at the family home in Manchester. Michael was playing alone in his room when Denise heard a shrill scream. The concerned mother dropped everything, ran upstairs where she found her son, curled up in the fetal position in the corner, shaking uncontrollably. Denise took the boy in her arms, soothed him, comforted him as any mother would, eventually... Michael calmed down enough to tell her what happened. He said that there'd been a strange man in his room 
and that the man had reached out to him, tried to touch his shoulder, but then disappeared right in front of his eyes. Denise took the story to be little more than just the, you know, fervid imaginings of a child. But then, a short while after, there was the incident at her parents' home. See, Denise had brought Michael for a visit, but the boy became fixated on a photograph hanging on the wall. You see where this is going? He started shaking, crying, pointing at the picture and shouting, That's the man. That's the man. Mm-hmm. That doesn't give you chills. I don't know what will. The faded sepia print he was pointing out was a photo of his great-grandfather, who had died 17 years earlier. Once this was explained to him, Michael calmed down. He now believed that his great-grandfather was there not to frighten him, but to protect him, to watch over him. Children, as we know... (laughs) They have active imaginations. Any parent will tell you that. They conjure up imaginary friends, fantastical stories, monsters under the bed. I myself had my own imaginary friend. Denise was concerned about her son's episodes, but not overly so, probably because of that. She was certain that they would pass, but they didn't. Michael started talking about the shadow man. A terrifying six-foot-tall apparition that had started appearing to him at night. Denise assured him that there was no such thing. It was a trick of the light. Probably the projection of the tree outside the window. But then the other family members started to experience phenomena for themselves. One night, Denise and her husband were awakened by loud thumping noises. They rushed to Michael's room where they found his bed shaking. And I'm not just talking about... Little thump thump here. I mean, violently shaking, lifting itself off the floor and slamming it back down. Believing that there was an intruder, Bruce Jones searched the house. He found nothing. And no one, every door and window was locked. On another occasion, Denise thought she saw her son's nocturnal visitor for herself. She was sitting alone when a flash of movement caught her eye. In a fleeting moment, a man-shaped Dark, inky black shadow passed along a wall. Nothing in the room could have explained that shadow nor the rash of goosebumps that danced up her arms instantly. It was then that she made her decision. The family had to move. It would be, actually, from what I saw in my research, one of the first of a half a dozen relocations that the Jones family would make over the years that followed. Wow. Moving didn't solve the problem, as you can imagine. It wasn't the houses that were haunted. It was Michael himself. Wherever he went, he appeared to bring his army of poltergeists, whatever you call them, with him. Faucets turned on and off for no reason. Doors opened and slammed shut. In one incident, Michael was playing a board game with his older brother, Kenny, when the dice flew across the room and the cards were tossed into the air like confetti. One card in particular hung in the air for almost a solid minute. Meanwhile, the metal game pieces became deadly projectiles flying away at such a velocity that they got stuck into the wall. It's bizarre. Another time, Denise heard a ruckus in the kitchen and entered to a bizarre scene. All the cupboard doors were open. All the drawers had been pulled out. Classic poltergeist activity. 
Tableware and glassware was stacked on the kitchen table in a pile four feet high. The fridge was tilted to one side and was dripping fluid from the spilled containers within. Food cans, boxes were arranged on the floor in a circle around the table. Denise, who had remained somewhat skeptical, despite what she'd seen and experienced, she decided after this incident that it was time to seek outside help. An initial consultation with the school counselor led to appointments with a neurologist and a psychologist. Michael was subjected to a barrage of tests, spent hours in therapy. The conclusion was that there was nothing physical or psychological wrong with him. As for the physical phenomena, the psychologist suggested that he may have caused this via psychokinesis. You guys know that word, even if you don't know what it is. What it is is an unconscious ability to move physical objects with nothing but the power of the mind. Perhaps Michael possessed these abilities. Unsurprisingly, these explanations failed to satisfy Denise Jones, I can imagine. Her son was still receiving his ghostly visitations, still living in overt terror. Inexplicable physical phenomena were occurring all over the home. So, Denise took her search for answers beyond the realm of conventional science. See, in Westport, Connecticut, there's still a group called ISSUE, I-S-S-U-E, Investigations of Strange Sightings and Unexplained Events. Denise got in touch with them and invited them into her home. Kind of sounds like a movie, doesn't it? Do you remember which one? <laughs> Here, the ghost hunters, they set up electromagnetic field meters, audio recorders, video cameras, you know, the whole bit. Their conclusion was that Michael Jones was being plagued by malignant spirits and was in the early stages of demonic possession. They recommended that Denise take her son to see the Reverend Robert McKenna, he was the pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Chapel in Monroe. McKenna, <laughs> uh, after diving into him a little bit over this past week, he's an interesting character. <laughs> I'll just say that. He's a former Roman Catholic priest. Uh, he was ex excommunicated from the church over his refusal to accept the Vatican reforms way back in the 1960s. Stood his ground, got excommunicated for it. And then after that, as most people would just... Right off into the sunset, probably, you know, just do whatever. Maybe start a shop in his garage. This guy found his own church. Yeah. He developed a reputation as an accomplished exorcist. According to McKenna, he performed over 120 of them over the years. I myself, based on his records, yes, but records nonetheless. And from what I could gather from outside sources. I was able to verify about 70 of them. He says he did 120. That's That might be accurate, actually. His initial examination told him the issue was correct, and this was indeed a case of demonic possession. McKenna was confident that he could rid Michael of his malignant spirits and perform his rites. Okay, February 1998, praying over the boy, sprinkling him with holy water, holding up a Crucifix while he chanted Latin phrases and commanded the demons to leave his body. It was like something out of a Hollywood horror movie. No different. But once the ceremony was done, McKenna assured Denise that it was done. It had succeeded. The demons had been banished. Michael would no longer be afflicted. But unfortunately, 
I wish I could say that this is the end of the episode. You guys have a good one. But it doesn't stop there. Father McKenna was wrong. The demons or ghosts, whatever the hell they were, had ignored his instructions. It wasn't long before Michael was again receiving visitations by menacing shadowy figures. These only increased in intensity after his best friend, Brandon Magnata, was killed in a traffic accident. Now, I did some digging on Brandon as well. I do my research. What happened was, see, Brandon, he had ridden his bike to the Jones residence that day, hoping to, you know, see his little buddy, but Michael wasn't home. So, according to the police, Brandon left wearing a jacket he borrowed from Michael. On the way home, he strayed to the wrong side of the road, hit by an oncoming car. Fortunately, he didn't suffer. The boy was killed instantly. In a book that Denise Jones later wrote on her son's case, she claimed that Brandon died because the evil spirits mistook him for Michael and pushed him into the path of the car. Brandon's mother, Janet Magnata, disputes this. Now, I'm not going to get into that. I'm just, I'm just giving it to you how I see it or how it was presented, right? <laughs> we'll chop it apart in a minute. I'm just telling you what everybody says. She insists that Brandon was not wearing Michael's jacket when he died. Sorry to say, this was corroborated by the police. He was wearing Michael's jacket. She also says that Brandon was killed the day after he visited Michael, not on the same day. Again, based on the police report, not true. But I can understand Janet Magnata. This is a traumatic event for her, and she doesn't want to be a part of this story. You know what I mean? I don't blame her. Whatever the timing. Because that's kind of erroneous at this point, right? I mean, one thing is certain. What we really need to focus on. On the day that Brandon Magnata died, Michael, at the same time, suffered a harrowing episode, one he had apparently anticipated. He'd been afraid to go to bed that night, convinced that the bad people would arrive to taunt him over his friend's death. Now, he said this the day before. <laughs> yes, he knew that one of his friends had passed away and that he was going to be tormented by it. And then, nothing happened that night. The next day, the day that Brandon actually died, Michael said it again. He was not aware at this point that his friend had been hit by a car. Michael stayed up late, sitting on his bed with all the lights on. Eventually, sleep took him. He couldn't keep his eyes open anymore. That's when it started. Maniacal laughter reverberated through the house, accompanied by the sound of a child crying. Pounding footsteps were heard in the upper hallway. Doors were opening and slamming shut. The rest of the family, awakened by the noise, rushed to Michael's room. There, the door remained firmly shut, even though it had no lock. Michael's stepfather, Bruce, had to apply his shoulder to force it open. Inside, the boy lay huddled in the corner, trembling in terror. His pajamas were ripped in several places. On the floor lay the blanket from his bed, and it was tied into the shape of a noose. Michael Jones. He would have two more exorcisms, two after that terrible night, neither of which freed him from the visitations. Denise also brought in another paranormal investigator, John Zaffis. If it name sounds familiar, it should. <laughs> he spent hundreds of hours working with not only the Jones family, but a lot of other ones. 
Zaphis began his investigation by trying to determine whether there might be some natural explanation for Michael's condition. His conclusion was that there was no neurological or psychological explanation for what was happening to the boy. That's two for two. Right? We could say three for three because <laughs> there were three therapists that said the same thing. There's nothing wrong with this kid. This episode is brought to you by the Gaggle of Gays podcast. Four people talking about true crime, spooky stuff, gossip, pop culture, and all the tea. In preparation for this ad, I took a deep dive into this podcast and learned pretty quickly that there is something for everybody here. Everything from the infamous Whaley House, conspiracy theories, the mysterious death of Elisa Lam, serial killers, awesome guests, personal stories, and creepypasta tales, it's all here. All inclusive, all interesting, and not just for our LGBTQIA friends. This is a truly fun podcast and one you should definitely check out. I followed, so should you. A link will be provided in this episode's description. So show the Gaggle of Gays podcast some love. However, Zaphis did undercover something of great relevance in Michael's background. Michael had been a sickly baby, afflicted by an irregular heartbeat. During the first two weeks of his life, his heart stopped beating at least 20 times, requiring him to be resuscitated. Over time, his condition had stabilized, allowing him to be discharged from the hospital. See where I'm going with this? John Zaffis, though, he believes that those near-death experiences are very relevant. According to him, they resulted in a door being opened to the spirit world. Evil spirits slipped through at that time and have been trying to take possession of Michael Jones ever since. Why? Because he had one foot in, one foot out. You dig? And it will be like that for life. Apparently, this kid had a very, very strong spirit. So, demonic possession, poltergeist, or some other supernatural phenomenon. Or might the case of Michael Jones be explained by science? Might his experiences be a consequence of the medical problems he suffered as a child? Simple answer, we have no idea. I think, personally, there are more things under heaven and earth alone than we could ever imagine. But as far as evidence, okay, <laughs> there's nothing to hunt down. Nothing. There's nothing to find. There's no photographs. We have police reports of certain events. We have corroboration of certain events. We can corroborate the factual stuff. But as far as the poltergeist activity, as far as the haunting, the family swears that it happens. We have witnesses all within the same you know, home. We have investigators that came out and said this is occurring. I think we have firmly established on this podcast that ghosts are a thing. I, I'll say it again. I say it in so many episodes, but I got to reiterate this. I don't think ghosts are what we think they are. Time is not linear, man. We just go through it that way from our limited perspective. All signs, really, if you use your common sense. Come on, this is a big thing with this podcast. Common sense. Let's look at hauntings, okay? Whenever you see a haunted place or someone explains an apparition that they saw or whatever, what is the ghost doing 99% of the time? 
going through what it did in life, going through the motions, right? It's like watching a rerun. You're not watching a rerun. It's happening right now. There's just some part of the ether that's thin. You know what I mean? Somehow you're able to look into this. Intelligent hauntings, how do you explain those? I think intelligent hauntings are just people who are aware of this phenomenon. Now, we don't have any stories from antiquity, people say, of them viewing people like us with weird haircuts and strange clothes they don't understand. Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And we'll get into it in future episodes. But yes, there have been stories about people in antiquity, dark ages, middle ages, early turn of the century that saw bizarre apparitions, strange appearances of people who are described in such a way that it kind of sounds like people now. It's weird. But is this more of a haunting or a case of possession, something demonic? I don't know how you draw, draw that conclusion, honestly. I really don't. Maybe these uh, priests, what have you, maybe they know something I don't. But I don't know how you go from seeing shadow men everywhere and covers opening and poltergeist activity happening to always oh, possessed by demonic entities. I don't know how they draw that conclusion, which may be the reason why the exorcisms didn't work. He's still plagued by sleep paralysis. Now I challenge you to watch a movie and I say the word challenge because <laughs> it is one. I think one of the most frightening, perhaps the most frightening when I really sit here and think about it, film I've ever seen, you may have seen it. It's called The Nightmare. I know it's on Netflix still, I'm pretty sure. You can probably find it on Roku somewhere too. I think you can rent it on YouTube actually, but it's called The Nightmare. It's about sleep paralysis. It talks to all these people who have suffered from pretty extreme cases of sleep paralysis. And it's a bizarre phenomenon. People seeing shadows that are like, three-dimensional things coming to them, whispering to them. There was one case that was bizarre. This guy was having a sleepover with a couple of girls. He said, sleep, anyway, sleepover. They're all laying into bed, and he has one of his episodes. This thing that had to duck its head to stand in the room was whispering these weird words to him he didn't understand. But one of the girls woke up because she felt kind of his rigid body movements, him desperately trying to move anything. She didn't suffer from sleep paralysis. You know what she saw? She woke up and she said that there was a black cat with red eyes laying on her chest and it was whispering into his ear. Sleep paralysis. I mean, it's a weird movie and it will scare the shit out of you. In watching the movie, you can make comparisons to alien visitation. You can make comparisons to demonic possession. But you know what gets me? Throughout this entire week, I really wanted to study a religious aspect of sleep paralysis. Now, I'm a Christian, okay? I'm not pushing anything on you. I'm not being preachy. My job is not to shove a Bible in someone's face and say, you're going to hell because of this, 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 this. My job is to love, period. My job is to be an example and not to judge. 
And I'll tell you where I stand, but I only need to say it once because, you know, why do I need to drill it into your head? My job is to be an example. With that said, I'm not trying to be preachy or anything. But from what I've seen, 100%, 100 of the cases that I studied personally where someone invokes the name of Jesus Christ, they don't suffer sleep paralysis ever again. And 100% of those cases where it's documented that they mentioned the name of Christ, they never had another episode ever again. There are markings of something demonic having to do with sleep paralysis. These stories go all the way back to the Middle Ages. They even said it was demonic. We're going into some pretty murky territory here. Me being a Christian... You know what's more sickening to me than anything? Churches that don't preach about hell. That bothers me. How are you going to know about the greatest insurance policy of all time, your very soul, if you don't know what's at stake? Again, I'm not trying to be preachy. I'm not trying to push nothing on you. I'm really not. I'm just telling you from my own point of view. There are churches that don't preach the other end of the stick. That's, that, that's disturbing to me. I think, and it's cliche, but it's true. I think the devil's greatest, his greatest achievement is convincing people that he does not exist. I went to um, a thing when I was a teenager. It's called Judgment House. I don't know if you know about it, but it's put on by various church groups. And what it is, it's like, um, imagine a Christmas carol <laughs> where the characters Scrooge and the various ghosts or whatever are walking through these scenes, seeing them as they're happening, but they can't be seen and they can't be heard. They can't be felt. They're walking around and watching these things happen. That's what Judgment House is. It's a play, but you're in it and you're walking through these sets and scenes. It's really, really unique. The stories vary from church to church or, you know, from place to place. But the gist of it is, there's some Christians, there's some non-Christians, they all die in some terrible accident or whatever. Usually it's a car accident. And, the, excuse me, the one I went to, they had a junked out car and police tape. It's a production. And you see them at the seat of judgment, you know what I mean, but they take you to hell first. I knew I was in a play. <laughs> obviously. I knew that this was a fiction. The story, anyway. It's depicting things that I believe are very, very real. But that sense of hopelessness when we were in hell, it was, it was too good of a production. It scared the shit out of me. And the devil almost kind of... It was actually the pastor playing Satan, which was uh, pretty amazing. He um, seemed to sense, I don't know, that... I was particularly more upset personally. I was shaking in my boots, man. It was weird. I remember the character of Satan coming up to me, pointing his finger at me and saying, you know what? If I can't have you, I'll have everybody you care about because you're too scared to tell them. You're too embarrassed. I never forgot that. I know that when we, when we went into the heaven portion, I get emotional. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's hitting me. I get emotional talking about it. I know that the person 
in the heaven room was not Jesus Christ. But I embraced that man and held on to him like nobody I've ever embraced in my life. It was one of those moments in my life that I knew I can't explain it, but this is real. I don't have to get all Christian preachy on you <laughs> to tell you that every culture has its demonic entities. Me, because of my faith, I am convinced that these entities are real. Where they come from, who they are, doesn't matter. I want nothing to do with them. And I suggest you don't either. Is this a true case of demonic possession? Is demonic possession even a thing? Can they jump inside your body? Can they jump inside you? Huh? Can they feed on your soul? Can they siphon your energy? I don't know. Uh, sorry. <laughs> My chair is really squeaky. <laughs> I got to get some WD-40. But this is one of those that it kind of goes beyond requires further study, doesn't it? Until we know what, like, <laughs> I got to say this carefully. I know a lot of you don't believe in this kind of stuff, and that's okay. That's okay. But until society, until the world knows as a whole, even me as a Christian, I'll just put it that way. Even with me as a Christian, I don't know the specific machinations of what causes demonic activity, what they do, where they go, if demonic possession is a thing, if they're even physically capable of doing anything to you like that. I don't know. Is this a case of demonic possession? We don't know. There is no evidence for this. It's a fascinating story. And it's one of those where we're just going to have to kind of wide off into the sunset and scratch our heads. <laughs> There's nothing else. All we have are stories. We're going to run into things like this. I'm very grateful for the episodes that we can prove as well as the ones that we can debunk. It seems like we debunk more than we prove on the show. <laughs> but we've had some compelling ones lately. One of my favorites being that pyramid moon photo. Oh, I'm still feeling the sting from that one. That one broke my heart, let me tell you. I wanted that one to be real so bad. But then what do we find out, remember? We find out that it was an overexposed photo of the corner of the module, the, that little cart that they drive around. And the perspective was messed up. It looks like a horizon. But what we were really looking at, and we proved it on the show, remember? <clears throat> that we were looking at the corner of the, <laughs> the module, reconnaissance module. That one, oh, I still feel that one. This one, we can't really go anywhere with. Because we don't know for sure. I'm convinced that demons are real. Every culture's had their demonic entities. I think that many people saying pretty much the same thing. Common sense tells you, okay, there's at least something going on here, right? I hope you don't see this as preachy. I hope you don't see this as me being forceful. And, you know, I, I hope you don't see it that way. I'm just telling you what my own personal beliefs are. But even, even in the shell of those personal beliefs, even in the box of that personal belief, we have nothing to go on here. 
It's poltergeist activity, but there's a demonic element to it. One thing that I want to know personally is how these priests are able to connect that, you know, how they're able to, oh yeah, this is demonic possession. What is their criteria? <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's a Catholic thing. And, you know, they do what they do. I just don't know. I'm uneducated on that. The question, the question is, did this really happen? And was it paranormal? But we could go deeper. Was it ghostly or was it demonic? We have so little here. I don't think we can answer any of those questions. But if you go ask his family today, look him in the eye. Who knows? That may convince you on its own. The eyes are the window to the soul. And if souls are as valuable as these demons may think they are, as valuable as I know they are, that might be all the truth you need. So anyway, guys, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming back every week. Make sure to go on Asylum817.com. That's Asylum817.com for all things Strange Places related. All the social media links are there. So we'll also need to get to our Patreon account where you can get ad-free episodes, bonus stuff, giveaways at certain tiers. It's awesome. Go check it out. Little as a dollar a month. And you'll be supporting the show. Shout out to the patrons, by the way. The Kunkel Homestead YouTube channel, Donald Haynes, David Peterson. show wouldn't be around if it wasn't for you. I appreciate all of you, all the listeners, all the fans. You're awesome. Now, are we ever going to run out of strange places to talk about? I don't think so. Because every town has a strange place. And maybe one day, we'll visit yours. This episode was brought to you by KeepOnSharing.com. They're calling themselves the first truly ethical social network. They'll share back 50% of their revenue with their users, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's free to register, and they never sell your information. You can list your products, events, and content for free. Adult content accounts, be gone. They're fun, positive, and encouraging sites supporting local business. In a day and age where social media sites, even well-established ones, are being brought to light left and right for their questionable and sometimes downright archaic business practices, KeepOnSharing.com is a well-needed breath of fresh air. While you can share personal content, news articles, or just about anything for fun and profit, the marketplace allows practically anyone to sell anything at any time from anywhere. But on this site, you are the boss. I cannot express how amazing it is that KeepOnSharing.com shares 50% of all revenue back with the users on top of having a truly transparent, supportive, and clean business model. Check them out. I'm signing up. Will you? Go ahead and meet me on there. Just go to KeepOnSharing.com. A link will be provided in this episode's description. 